This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're going to be in the high 70s today, and the daffodils know it. Drive around, look around. It's beautiful out there. Let's just hope we don't have tornadoes. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney Astolfi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa, do we have our own George Santos in Ohio, who's the state lawmaker who has falsified his resume? I don't know if he rises to the Santos level of trickery, but uh, the uh, Republican from Columbus representing the 10th District, David Dobos, claimed to be a graduate of the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology on his official and his campaign websites, although it has since been removed from his official page. But MIT Media Relations Sarah McDonald says that it's not true that he graduated. He did attend MIT, though, three different times between 1973 in 1980 as an economics undergraduate, but no degree was ever conferred. However, his attendance at MIT gets him membership in their alumni association um, because he was in a degree granting program for at least one full term. And he was active in several, you know, MIT alumni groups and events. He is the freshman representative. He's the former Columbus Board of Education president. He was until yesterday or early this morning, vice chair of the House Higher Education Committee, but he has since withdrawn from that committee. Um, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, um, we've reported earlier that he failed to disclose over $1.4 million in outstanding debt in compliance with state law. And that includes $1.3 million that was he was ordered to pay in 2014 for the purchase of an education supply business. Um, the judge there found that there was intentional misrepresentation of his business failures and his expertise and his extraordinary debt load. Why, when you're his age, are you pulling this nonsense. He's been around for years and years. This rub, rubs me the wrong way. My dad was a smart guy, got a full ride to MIT. So you really don't want to claim a degree from MIT unless you earned it. But what's the point at this point in his life of pushing that narrative? Uh, who knows? I mean, maybe he thought people, you know, there are a lot of fewer investigative journalists nowadays. Maybe he thought nobody would look into his claim. And the financial part could get him into some serious trouble. It's just this this need to lie on your resume. And he's on the, you know, he's the vice chair of the education committee. I mean, it's a complete thwarting of everything that is public and good. More evidence that we really do have crackpots in Columbus. Good reporting that ferreted all this out. And I don't know, if we keep finding more and more stuff, at some point, might we say he's on the level of Santos? We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Has the fungal infection that defies treatment hit hard in Ohio's nursing homes? Laura, this story has been roaring for the past couple of weeks. It's scaring a lot of people. It's the first real fungal infection that can't really be treated, unlike the bacterial infections we've been dealing with for years. What's going on in our nursing homes? Yeah, this is Candida auris. It's a drug-resistant fungal infection. It spreads easily in hospitals and nursing homes and can lead to death, and it is on the rise. It tripled between 2019 and 2021, and now treatment-resistant cases are also rising. We had, through the end of 2022, had 79 cases in Ohio. Now we're looking at 416 cases just through mid-March, which is kind of scary. There's 101 cases in Cuyahoga County and some in the surrounding areas, more than 8,000 cases across the United States. And this is, it lingers on the surfaces. It's spread through touch, difficult to treat and detect. And so I had never heard of it. I'd heard of C. diff a lot. So this is sort of like that, but it has like a different I think it's like the same kind of scariness, but um, it is is different than C. diff. Yeah, because it's fungal. Right. I mean, that that's the part. I mean, can't, can't the, the, these kind of funguses been around? Fungi have been around for a long time. The scary thing about this is it's now defying the treatments that had been used, much like some of the the really bad bacterial infections. And once it gets into places like nursing homes and hospitals you're in trouble because you got immunocompromised people that don't have the tools to fight back. And it's really hard to get out, especially since it's hard to detect. It wasn't even detected in the United States until 2016. It's been in 25 states so far. They're, they're wondering why the cases began rising in 2021, but they think it because could be because of COVID and the way it disrupted the healthcare system. Huh. Okay. It's a good story on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the story behind the Ohioan who was before the Ohio Supreme Court trying to change the gender listed on her birth certificate? Courtney. Yeah, this involves Haley Adelaide. She's a Clark County woman born in 1973, and she came out as a woman in 2020. She said she's long identified as a woman, and and then in 2021, she sought to change her name, and she sought to correct her birth certificate when it switched from male to female. So she went to the Clark County Probate Court. And in late 2021, the probate court there granted the name change, but denied the change to Adelaide's birth certificate. So that's kind of where this leaps off. And and she appealed to an appellate court and, and was arguing in that appeal that there was a 2020 federal court decision that, that found the Ohio Department of Health's prohibition on changing the sex listed on the birth certificates that this Ohio process was unconstitutional. And, and then later, Ohio's courts, the probate court and the appellate court she went to, decided that this federal case doesn't address the authority of Ohio's probate courts. And that's kind of where we find ourselves today. So Adelaide's taking this to the Ohio Supreme Court, and she wants them to force the lower court to allow her to change her birth certificate. But there seems to be some issues at the Ohio Supreme Court level. It's a a tough one because you're talking about changing a historical record. And and the Supreme Court is basically saying, should this even be here? Because who's fighting this? Who who has the standing to debate it? But it's an unusual one. It's one of these that I don't think society would have contemplated 20, 30 years ago. What's the right thing to do? 
what's important here is that Adelaide's case does have bearing on, on transgender folks across Ohio. So probate courts in, in 11 Ohio counties are holding off on decisions about requested changes to birth certificates until the Ohio Supreme Court rules here. But like you said, the Ohio Supreme Court is kind of hesitant for some legal reasons, it appears. Two justices, Pat Fisher and Pat DeWine, are basically saying that they're not sure that there is a case here for them because there's no appellee. There's no parties defending the decisions from the probate court and the appellate court to not allow her to change her birth certificate. So that, that part is a little confusing to me, honestly, but her attorneys are arguing that that the Ohio Supreme Court here has authority to review a final order from a probate court. You know, and we also heard the the two of the justices yesterday, DeWine specifically, talk about, you know, whether this should be something that, that should be decided by the legislature. We know that Ohio's legislators is pretty anti-trans, so I, I doubt that there's a remedy there. And then, you know, Pat DeWine also asked whether this should be a different kind of court motion, asking the Supreme Court to compel the lower court to do something. But it seems like it's it's quite unresolved and, and justices are hesitant. I, you probably can't answer this, but I wonder if there's any kind of mechanism in Ohio law for altering a birth certificate. If, for instance, after a baby is born, a few years pass, and it, DNA testing shows that the father listed is not the father and it's somebody else, can you go back and change a birth certificate to relist the father? Do you have to go to a court to do that? Is it then an amended birth certificate and marked as such? I, I just don't know what the mechanism is for just summarily erasing an existing public document and replacing with another. If you have a a deed that's in error, you file an amended deed, and but it, the original deed is still in the recorder's office. I don't think they delete it. So you're, you're talking about mechanisms that usually are built by the legislature, but as you know, there's no way they're going to help out on this. So it's a, it's a tough one. I don't know what the Supreme Court's path is. Well, and it, it's an interesting conundrum because, you, as you say, you're changing a historical record. And, you know, people who are transgendered, you know, say that their old name is their dead name. And so, you know, they don't want to be called by that name anymore. But I wonder if they should have like a rebirth certificate or some sort of other legal means that doesn't change the original. Because a transgendered woman still has an X and Y chromosome. They still do, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, I mean, I would think that the legislature, if they wanted to help out, would set up a process by which you could get a new birth certificate, right. maybe labeled as such, be because otherwise you're demeaning transgender people, you're refusing to be welcoming, they're already feeling like society is trying to, to squeeze them. But it's but but the courts don't generally set that kind of policy. That's what mm -hmm. that's why we elect lawmakers. And as Courtney points out, our lawmakers, they're crackpots, man. There's no way they will take this up. They're not going to do anything that makes life easier for a transgender person. So the I think the excellent word, Lisa, it is a conundrum. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Emily Moreno recently became the head of the Cuyahoga County Republican Party, but she's already resigning. Lisa, do we have any clue as to why? 
We, we really don't. Emily Moreno-Miller, who's the daughter of Cleveland businessman Bernie Moreno, she announced yesterday that she was stepping down as the executive chairman of the Cuyahoga County Republican Party. She was only appointed in January, so she served less than three months. Uh, she, In her email, she said she didn't list a reason, but she says she's still committed to bringing politics back to the local level. And then when she was reached by phone, she declined any further comment. So her job was basically the number two position within the party. She worked with party donors, helped appoint GOP members to the Board of Elections in Cuyahoga County, and helped the chair, Lisa Sticken, recruit candidates. Now, she previously, she's got she's kind of got Republican royalty here. She was previously working on the campaigns for Donald Trump and Marco Rubio. She is married to former Trump aide and now Rocky River Representative Max Miller. Yeah, I, I because she's not talking, we have license to speculate here. So let's <laughs> let's talk about the possibilities. One possibility is that her dad is going to make another futile attempt at running for the U.S. Senate, like he made a couple of years ago, and she wants to not be messed up with the Republican Party in the county while he does that. That doesn't seem like a good reason, but maybe. The other thing is, we just had a big controversy in the county Republican Party where the fringe people decided to censure Tom Patton because mm. he voted for the wrong Republican for House mm-hmm. Speaker. They used the mechanism by which you're not allowed to vote for somebody in another party, but he voted for somebody in his party, but it wasn't the one they wanted. And it caused some huge dissent in the party. There were people that spoke very strongly for Patton saying he didn't do anything wrong, but the wingnuts of the party decided let's pound on him and and uh, strip him of his committee posts. Maybe she's uncomfortable with that, although, as you said, she's married to Max Miller, who kind of is the fringe side of the Republican Party, so you would think she might be aligned with that. I wonder if her, you know, philosophy or, or ideology was maybe not extreme enough. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that's it. I, I wish she would have said something because it seems like the county Republican Party is in complete disarray. It's a powerless kind of body because the county is heavily Democratic. Just strange that she would drop out three months later. You're listening to Today in Ohio. As if the opioid crisis is not devastating enough already, Northeast Ohio is seeing a new deadly mixture, including an ingredient that can cause human flesh to rot. Laura, what is it and why would you inject yourself with something that can cause your flesh to rot? I don't think you're doing it on purpose. This is xylazine, which is approved for use in large animals like horses and cattle, not for humans. It's actually not illegal under federal law because... I don't I think this is so new that they didn't know it would ever be used with humans. And it's being mixed with fentanyl, which obviously is an opioid that is incredibly deadly. But this makes it even worse because it slows down your breathing. And if you if you give the antidote of sorry, yeah, antidote of now, I can never say this naloxone, it doesn't work because it's not affected by that drug. So it's it's people taking like some kind of opioid street opioids and not knowing that this is included in the mixture. And that's what's so horrifying about it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they made a big arrest of a drug dealer in Cleveland Heights and they found these ingredients in his home. And yeah. In the blender. Yeah. Right. Mm. So it sparked us to do the story. But the, the, the detail that hit me is that it caught, it can cause your, your flesh to just rot away, not even where you inject it. It just goes somewhere and starts attacking 
Um, it's so so not only do we have the the overdose deaths and and things, and this, and is, this is pretty prevalent at this point because the DEA saying that they're in their lab, they detected it in twenty three percent of the powder fentanyl it sees and seven percent of the fentanyl pills. That's a pretty high percentage that you have no idea it's there. Eighteen people died from the mixture in 2022. That was up from fifteen in twenty twenty one. I. With how deadly this seems, I'm surprised it's not higher. Adam Freese wrote a story about it. It's on cleveland.com. Check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've talked for more than a decade about the need to replace the rail cars for the Regional Transit Authority. Courtney, do we now know where the RTA plans to buy them, even if they don't have quite enough money to do that? Yes, finally. So this discussion, like you said, has been going on for a while now after... I think we're at a couple years now of searching for a manufacturer. RTA has landed on Siemens. And they're look I mean, they're a big rail car manufacturer. They're a big company. I don't think there's really a huge surprise there that that RTA is going with them. But but now we have the initial steps of actually moving towards getting some new cars in Cleveland, which we know are desperately needed, right? I mean, I think I remember at my first RTA meeting in 2019, they were talking about how the red line rail cars were you know, by now they're already past their useful life. They should have been replaced within five years back then. And so the clock has been ticking louder and louder. So this first step is is, is a it's a good one that RTA's arrived at. There's a total roughly $400 million price tag that RTA would need to replace its rail car system-wide across blue, green, waterfront, and red lines. But this first batch they're looking to buy from Siemens would be 24 rail cars, for the red line. And that would be a cost of about $164 million. RTA is still about $7 million short there. They're looking to get some money from the Infrastructure Act to, to, to fill that gap and, and proceed with this first batch of cars for the red line. But, but RTA knows this is going to be a process of piecing together funding over the years to come to buy these cars in batches. And, and these cars do have some notable differences from the ones we have now. First of all, they're going to be able to run on both lines. The red line's heavy rail, the blue and green lines are light rail. These cars will be a unified fleet that can operate on both. RTA sees that as a cost savings mechanism and the ability to do more with their transit routes. But at the same time, these new cars are going to be sleeker, plastic seats for easier cleaning, bike racks, ice cutting technology on the front end to deal with Cleveland winners, better access for folks using wheelchairs, and a bunch of other things like that. But fewer seats. Yes, that is interesting here. The current cars have about 84 seats. The new cars will have 52. RTA saying there's more standing room. I'm curious about why they opted for that. But I mean, if you ride the train, except for like big events downtown, like sports games, a lot of those seats are unfilled. So I guess that's not not too crazy to think of. Well, maybe this gives them a greater capacity for those big events with that many more people standing and, and clearing up some room. It was just an interesting reducing the, the seating capacity. Look, if you go back to when they first started talking about the need for these and they started talking about dates for when the existing cars would pass the date of their useful life, it's years ago. I mean, these trains should be rotted off the tracks according to what they were saying 10 and 15 years ago. This is pretty pressing. Uh, and for anybody that believes in public transportation, this has to happen now. This is They've got to get this on track. Ha ha ha. So interesting that they know where they're coming from. What's odd is they said 
the trains aren't designed yet, that this starts a process of getting the trains designed. Yeah, I, I suppose that didn't surprise me too much. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of moving parts and pieces here. You can imagine why RTA wouldn't want to be hands-on working with the Siemens folks on different specs and things. That that strikes me as, I guess, expected. But I, I don't know. We'll have to see. If if all the funding falls into place here, we could be seeing these these cars go out and start running within four years. And, and like you said, that's pretty important. In 2019, they said they had five years left on a max. So we're getting pretty desperate. How do they get them here? Do you know? Do they put them on trucks? Do they put them on rail lines? <laughs> How do you get a train car to deliver it to Cleveland from wherever it's manufactured? I know you don't have the answer to that, but it'll be an interesting one to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our stats guru took a shot at measuring the prevalence of guns in Ohio. What are the highlights of what he found, Lisa? And Zachary Smith had his work cut out for him because, as we know, gun data remains very scarce due to federal restrictions. And oftentimes we have to rely on gun industry experts who have a likely bias on the figures that they, that they distribute. But there was a mass killing database that's been compiled by Northeastern University, USA Today, and the Associated Press. So looking at that data, Zach found that there was an estimated 655,772 firearms sold in Ohio in 2021, just one year. There's also been a 91% increase in firearm homicides since 2010. We've had 20 mass killings in Ohio, resulting in 100 fatalities. And that, of course, includes the 2019 Dayton shooting where nine were dead and an AR-15 style pistol was used. So in looking at AR-15s, anecdotally, it's believed that one out of 20 adults owns one or more uh, you know, AR-15s, that would be about 16 million. Um, another, and that's according to a Washington Post poll, another factoid, um, another group said that there's probably about 20 million. So we really don't know. It could be anywhere from 16 to 20 million AR-15s rattling around. Uh, the sales of AR-15s tend to jump after most school shootings or during presidential campaigns. However, only about 5% of the total homicides, according to the FBI, involve AR-15s. In Ohio, there were 13 AR-15 murders in 2019, and that was the most since 2005. And Zach found that, you know, as with typical gun owners, AR-15 owners are basically the same demographic, most likely male, white, live in the suburbs or in the South, but two interesting outliers. 56% of AR-15 owners make $100,000 or more, and 10% are Democrats. The, I got to give a tip of the hat to the Washington Post. They did a tremendous amount of reporting on AR-15s in a series that they published mostly last week that went into how that went from being kind of a fringe gun to the most commonly sought and how much money the gun makers earned from them and how this just became the badge of honor for the Republican Party. Uh, we did. Th- this was an effort to put it into the Ohio perspective, which is hard, as as Zach points out in his story, all the the roadblocks to doing that. But he he made a game effort at it. It's pretty interesting what he was able to turn up. You're listening to today in Ohio. 
Let's talk about the fishing situation in Lake Erie, Laura. Things are looking pretty good these days, especially for the walleye. What do we know? Yeah, exactly. So walleye, another standout hatch year for walleye. This is like the seventh in the last nine years. So the total allowable catch is going to stay the same. I believe it's six per person per day. Uh, and that's decided on by a bunch of states and Ontario, everyone who surrounds Lake Erie to make sure that there's fish for everyone. But you'll be able to catch, you'll be able to catch that limit. You'll be able to go out and every day and catch that limit. So most walleye caught are about two to five pounds. There's a 15 inch length limit. So like if it's below 15 inches, you need to throw it back so that it can get bigger, but you can earn a fish Ohio award for landing a 28 inch walleye. And that is not that hard to do at this point. So walleye grow pretty quickly. Some of the walleye that were hatched last spring will be 15 inches already next year. So they get big, they get big fast. The the news is not quite as good for perch, uh, especially around our area in the central basin. In the western basin, they're doing much better around the islands and Toledo. So you actually have fewer perch in the central basin that you can catch down to 10 a day. And didn't the story say that the walleye fishing zones have expanded into areas that were not prolific before, including near Cleveland? Yes. The central basin is better for walleye fishing than it has been. And so you've always been able to catch walleye here, but there are just more of them. So, but if you, you know, because of the, the islands and um, the vacation spot, I think you, you have more charter fish um, businesses out there and more people that go fish there because of Putin Bay. But hey, there's plenty to catch right around here. And you can catch walleye, especially in the fall, right off a dock. And uh, the other fish that was mentioned in the story was bass, yes. meaning people will have a reason to go to Bass Island. <laughs> I think there's lots of reasons to go to South Bass Island <laughs> where Putin Bay is. Most of them do not include fish, but they do include um, some sort of liquid. But anyway, um, so the bass are doing better. And I guess in November, a guy caught a 10.15 pound bass in the Ontario waters. And that was the third heaviest bass ever on record. It was 16 years old and it's triggered this new interest in catching a bass. Um, so apparently it was a favorite of President Grover Cleveland, which I did not know. Yeah, we we know from what we see on our site that the fishing report is a hot topic for a lot of people in Northeast Ohio. So you can't go wrong talking about it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A few years back, there was an eclipse that you could see in parts of the nation. We only could see partial, but the news back then was next year, we're going to be right in the zone. So, Courtney, how might a total solar eclipse next year be the tourism boon for Northeast Ohio? Yeah, this is this is exciting. So Cleveland's going to be a destination for next year's solar eclipse. It's it's going to happen on April 8th, 2024. And basically, those who are inside a 124 mile wide band, it runs from Texas to Maine, Cleveland's within that will be in the path of totality here. So they're, they're going to see the moon completely block out the sun and all the cool effects that that brings. You can see stars and planets in the sky and the colors of the sunset at the horizons. It'll be four full minutes of this, this Mother Nature show. And this hasn't happened in Cleveland since 1806. It's not going to happen again here until 2444. And like you said, local institutions are looking at this as a draw for people to come to one of the cities that does happen to lie in the path of totality to 
to really get a load of it from Cleveland. And so the Cleveland Museum, the Cleveland Natural History Museum, Great Lakes Science Center, NASA Glenn Research Center are kind of teaming up to to make sure lots of folks are aware of this and ready and able to take it in in Cleveland. And and to kick off the countdown to next spring when this is going to happen, the Natural History Museum's doing eclipse-themed planetarium shows this weekend that's part of the price of admission and, you know, to get people hyped and and prepared for next year. The astronomy team there is going to simulate what it looks like uh, when there is an actual total eclipse, and and there's more events planned for this fall. So if you look out the window, you'll see we have a cloudy day. What do you do if there's a total solar eclipse and we're covered with the typical Cleveland clouds of springtime? Oh, don't say that. We, we're just going to have to hope that the weather works out for us, I would think. You know, the, um, the, it, it, like you said, it's, it's going to be hopefully a tourism draw. So hopefully those folks aren't disappointed when they get here by the clouds. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. I might take the day off just so I can shoot pictures <laughs> of it because this might be the last time in my lifetime that I get to see one. And it is a very cool thing. I'm sure Dave Pekowitz, our photographer, will publish a story closer to the time about how you can do this. And I still have my super sunglasses from last time. (laughs) Yeah, I actually bought a five pack of solar glasses like a month ago because as the eclipse approached, you couldn't find them anywhere online or nothing. And so, you know, my brother and his friends, they went down to North Carolina for the eclipse. And one of their friends said, well, I'm going to go further south. Well, where he went, there was cloud cover. So if he'd stayed where he was, he would have seen it in all its glory, but he decided to move and there were clouds. So it's going to be kind of a toss up. And I think that meteorologists have looked at the day, which is April 8th, and what the typical weather is for that day. And I don't know. I know. It's not it's yeah. not looking good. Although I, I think we could help people uh, get their glasses now while they still can with a good post on where to find them and how much <laughs> mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. I hope Kristen Davis is listening. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. A short episode. We'll be back Thursday. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.